Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 5 Mysteries of the Brain After a short while, I was allocated my own patients to see as art patients. I was encouraged to make my own decisions and to consider my own plans for investigation and treatment. Equally, though, I was encouraged to discuss patients and to cross-reference my decisions with my consultant. This meant that the children that I was seeing always had access to the experience and knowledge of the consultant, but I was able to be an independent learner. Some of the children that I saw had extremely complex problems, and some less so. One of the very important things that I learned was that the complexity of the problem was not the main issue, but that one had to see the problem in light of the child themselves. It's easy in a subspecialty like neurology to focus on complexity and to see a problem, but to fail to understand that that problem affects an individual child and that child's family. That was not the approach we took in Glasgow. I was always encouraged to see the child first, and to try to understand the impact of the problem upon that child. Yes, it was important to make a correct diagnosis and to implement correct treatment, but that's really only important if you consider how the problem affects the child and, very importantly, how the treatment will affect the child as well. One of the things you learn early on in neurology is that there are very few situations in which the disease itself is reversible. Much of the approach to a child with neurological disease is about helping to ensure that the child and their family can live with the diagnosis and the treatment, and that the child is better for the intervention that you provide. Many of the children that I saw would have very long-term problems, and these problems would impact greatly on their lives and on the lives of their families. That's why so many of my colleagues can't understand why I love neurology so much. I often hear people saying to me, Isn't it really depressing? For me, though, it's quite the opposite. I find it amazingly uplifting. To be able to support families in dealing with very challenging issues and to know that my role is to improve the outcome as far as is possible was and remains one of the joys of neurology. It isn't always easy for families. Sadly, many of the parental partnerships don't survive the diagnosis of severe neurological disease in their child, but many do and for many families they grow closer and stronger, not in spite of the child, but because of the child. I also realised that as a doctor looking after a child with neurological disease, it would always need to be a partnership. While I as a doctor might be the expert in understanding neurological disease, and to be fair in those days I wasn't, the parents are always the expert on their child, and effective treatment for that child involves a close partnership between doctor and family. The other thing I learned quickly was the importance of so many other people in the lives of children with neurological disease. Therapists, teachers, social workers, transport drivers and so on all played a really important part in keeping children well. One of the most important groups of people supporting families with long-term neurological health needs were the nursing staff and the partnership between doctors, nurses and therapists, and the need for really effective teamworking is what made my training in Glasgow so positive. One of the children I met in either my first or second independent outpatient clinic was a boy of 11 years. 
His parents had noticed that he'd become increasingly clumsy over the last several months. Prior to that, there had been no concerns about him at all. His parents report that he was often tripping and falling, and I noticed that he seemed to walk in a way that looked as if he was drunk or constantly dizzy. They noticed that his speech had become a little bit slower and slightly more difficult to understand. No one in the family had ever had a problem like this, and, not surprisingly, they were extremely worried about him. When I first met Alex, he seemed a very bright boy, who was obviously unsteady on his feet. He walked with his feet widely spaced apart, and he looked as though he was having difficulty balancing. He particularly found it difficult when he was changing direction, and would often fall. His speech was slow and very slightly slurred. I noticed that when I asked him to write his name, his hands were very shaky, and he found it difficult to follow things moving slowly in front of him with his eyes. When I examined him, I noticed that he had signs that the nerves in his legs were not working as well as they should do. I explained to Alex and his parents that I could find signs that the balancing organ of his brain was not working as well as normal, and I explained that there were a number of different causes for this. I told him that there would be further tests that would need to be done. I discussed Alex with my consultant and told him that I thought the problem was in the cerebellum, or balancing organ of the brain. I discussed further testing with my consultant. We arranged for Alex to have an electrical study of the nerves. This revealed that the nerves carrying sensation in his legs were not working normally. This is known as a sensory neuropathy. He also had a heart scan or echocardiogram which showed that the muscles of his heart wall were thickened. The combination of these features and the findings on examining Alex confirmed the diagnosis of a rare disorder called Friedreich's ataxia. Armed with these results, I arranged to see Alex and his family again to explain our findings. Before we go any further, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Friedreich's ataxia. This was first described in the 1860s by a German doctor called Nikolaus Friedreich. He recognised this pattern of progressive impairment of coordination beginning in childhood and continuing into adult life. Friedreich's ataxia is a genetic condition which occurs when a child inherits faulty genes from each of his or her parents. For most human genes, there are two copies one of which we inherit from our father and one of which from our mother. In this situation, as long as there is a single normal copy, the gene will function normally. So, for example, if two people carrying the faulty gene for Friedreich's ataxia have children, both parents will be well because they will each have one normal gene inherited from either their father or their mother. However, they will each also have a faulty gene again inherited either from their father or their mother. A baby who is born to these parents could inherit a normal gene from both father and mother, a normal gene from their father and a faulty gene from their mother, or a normal gene from their mother and a faulty gene from their father. All of those children would be neurologically normal. However, if a child inherits a faulty gene from their father and a faulty gene from their mother, they have no normal gene and that child will present with Friedreich's ataxia. This is known as an autosomal recessive inheritance pattern. When I started training in neurology, although it was known that Friedreich's was an autosomal recessive condition, 
the gene causing it had not been identified. It wasn't until 1996 that the gene causing Friedreich's ataxia, known as the Fritaxin gene, was first described. Prior to 1996, therefore, the diagnosis depended on clinical features, the presence of an abnormal heart scan, and the typical findings of a sensory neuropathy. Friedreich's ataxia is a slowly progressive disorder, which leads to increasing problems with balance and coordination, and eventually leads to an affected individual becoming reliant on a wheelchair for mobility. Complications such as curvature of the spine, impaired heart function and diabetes often occur. It does have an impact on life expectancy, and most people with Friedreich's ataxia will not live as long as the general population. There is no specific treatment for Friedreich's ataxia itself, but the complications such as heart failure and diabetes can be treated, and supportive therapies such as physiotherapy and speech and language therapy have an invaluable role. Let's return to Alex. As I had been the doctor to meet with Alex and his family at presentation, I needed to meet with them to explain the diagnosis and prognosis. This was extremely difficult. Although I had often had to talk to parents about serious illness in a child who had become acutely unwell, this was the first time I had had to break bad news about a long-term progressive disease. Currently, medical students and junior doctors are taught about breaking bad news, but this is a relatively recent addition to medical education. As a result, I had to depend on my previous experience of speaking to children and families, and my innate ability to communicate. I'm sure that it is essential for young doctors to be taught to break bad news, but I know that some people are better at doing this than others. This is a crucial skill to master. Bad news is always bad news. However, people always remember how they received that news, and conveying this in a sensitive and empathetic manner can make a massive difference to help families cope with the information they are receiving. It's essential to be honest and not to try to conceal the truth. However, it is also essential to ensure that the information is not all bleak, and that where appropriate, positive as well as negative information is given. I have met so many families who have been scarred by being given bad news in either an uncaring or excessively blunt manner, and I am always conscious of this when I speak to families. It is also essential to be informed. Families receiving bad news don't want to feel that the person conveying that news doesn't know what they are talking about. They need to know that they are being told the truth and that the doctor speaking to them knows what he or she is talking about. It doesn't always go well. Sometimes, however carefully you approach the issue, people may be so upset that they become angry or they may be unable to listen further and need to leave. It's really important to understand that and to be able to give people the opportunity to have time out and to recognise that anger or indeed any other emotion only reflects the enormity of what people are hearing. It may be necessary to offer to speak again, and it's always essential to give people plenty of time so that they have the opportunity to process what they are being told. They also need to be given the time to come back and to ask questions, sometimes on another day. It's equally important to ensure that the information is given to the child or young person as well. How that's done will vary depending on the age of the child, their ability to understand what's being said, and relying on how the family want you to approach the situation, as they know how their child might react. 
Very often when speaking to a younger child, I would talk to the parents first and then to the child afterwards. It's also important to recognise that conveying bad news is emotionally draining and so, as a doctor, you need to take care of yourself and make sure you are in the best possible place to be able to speak to families when things are tough for them. Much of what I said above is distilled from many years of speaking to families. When I went in to speak to Alex and his family, I didn't have the benefit of those years of experience. However, I knew that I needed to be well informed, and I made sure that I had read up well about Friedreich's ataxia before I went in. I also understood the importance of empathy and about giving time. I asked one of the nurses to take Alex to play on a computer game, and I spoke to his parents. They were desperately upset, but in a way relieved, as they had feared that the news might be even worse. They felt that now they knew what the problem was, they could work out as a family how to deal with it. We talked about the positive help and support that Alex could receive, and the fact that things would probably change only very slowly over a long period of time. We then discussed how I would speak to Alex, and indeed what I would say. Once we'd agreed that, I brought Alex back in, and, with his parents, I explained that he had a problem in the balancing part of his brain that meant that this wasn't working as well as it should do. I explained that this was why he found it more difficult to walk than he had in the past, and why he was tending to fall over. I explained that this was something that would change, but very slowly. We talked about the sort of help and support that he would receive in the form of therapy and advice to school. I gave him the opportunity to ask questions, and I recall he asked some really penetrating and important questions. He was an extremely bright lad. After a period of time, it was clear that we had gone as far as we could on that day. I arranged for our neurology nurse to contact the family the following day to provide support, to reiterate any information the family had not fully recalled, and to address any questions that they had thought of since we had met. I continued to see Alex in the outpatient clinic. We made a referral to medical genetics and closely monitored things like curvature of the spine, his heart and his blood sugar. Alex was indeed a very bright young man and he made brilliant progress at school. Our occupational therapist went into school to ensure that he had all the appropriate aids and support to ensure that he could achieve his full potential. He continued to walk, although he had a wheelchair when he was going outdoors for long distances. Several years later, his family said to me that they had found the meeting where they'd been given the diagnosis to have been a positive experience. They told me that they were grateful for my honesty, for the clarity of the information they'd been given. They told me that this had made it much less difficult for them as a family to cope with what they were being told. This was yet another important lesson for me in the importance of good communication. For me, this remains the core of an effective clinical encounter. Not all of neurology is about conveying bad news. Many of the most frightening things with which children present turn out to be benign. Katie was 18 months old when her GP referred her to neurology. The concern was that she'd had a series of fits, and both the GP and parents were worried that she might be developing epilepsy. When I saw her, the story was that Katie had had several attacks over the previous few weeks. I went through the story with her mum, who had been present for the majority of these attacks. 
She told me that the first time Katie had one of her fits, she was playing with some building bricks on the floor. She stood up to go to her mum, but as she walked towards her, she stepped on one of the building bricks and fell forward. Katie's mum told me that she didn't fall hard, but that immediately after falling, Katie went deathly pale, and she was actually fearful that she was dying. Katie's eyes rolled back and she went extremely stiff. Her mum didn't know how long this had lasted for, but said that it felt like forever. Katie then relaxed and over the next few minutes her colour gradually improved. She started to come round and seemed to be frightened and upset. It took her over an hour to fully return to her normal self, but then she carried on playing as though nothing had happened. Katie's mum had called an ambulance and she was taken to hospital. By the time she arrived there she was completely back to her normal self and she was allowed home. We went through the story of all the other attacks. None of them had been quite as severe as the first one. However, on each occasion there had been a minor fall, or Katie had had a fright. The sequence of events on each occasion was the same. From the story I was able to explain to Katie's mum that this was a recognised type of fit known as a reflex anoxic seizure. I explained that this was, in effect, a type of faint, and that although very frightening, it was not an indication of a serious underlying problem. We arranged for Katie to have a heart tracing which was normal. She wasn't anemic and there were no other health concerns. I therefore explained to Katie's mom that Katie was an otherwise healthy little girl with no serious underlying health problems. I gave advice about making Katie safe during attacks, putting her on her side and waiting for her to recover after the attacks. I advised her to talk reassuringly to Katie during the attack and as she recovered. I explained that these would probably diminish with time and that they did not indicate any serious problem either with Katie's heart or with her brain. I gave information about the condition and was very reassuring about the future. Katie's mum left, much relieved. to effective diagnosis of FITS is to understand that the term FIT is non-specific. At the most trivial end, we all understand that you can have a fit of laughter. However, most children who are referred to doctors with FITS have had some sort of an event which involves a change in behaviour, often accompanied by some sort of abnormal movement. There are many causes of such events. When approaching the diagnosis in this situation, it is really important to understand the possible causes of fit in a child of any particular age, and to use the history given to discern what the problem is. Ultimately, the diagnosis of any fit depends on effective history taking, and although tests may be useful, they are usually only confirmatory rather than diagnostic. Nowadays, the ready availability of mobile phones means that many parents come not only with a description of the event, but with a video of at least part of the attack. This can be extremely helpful in aiding diagnosis. So what are reflex anoxic seizures? Essentially, these are brain-mediated heart events, which are much more common in young children, but which can occur at any age. There are several alternative terms used to describe these events including pallid breath-holding, reflex asystolic syncope, and cardio-inhibitory neurally-mediated syncope. One of the leading experts in this disorder is Professor John Stevenson. 
Yes, the same man who inspired my career in child neurology and who was my consultant during my training. Reflex noxic seizures occur when there is an excessive stimulation from one of the nerves that supply the heart. This nerve is known as the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve slows heart rate and in normal circumstances has an important role in maintaining normal heart rhythms. However, in susceptible individuals, triggers such as pain or fright can lead to overactivity of the vagus nerve, causing the heart to severely slow or even stop temporarily. The latter is known as asystole. As a result of the heart stopping, the blood flow to the brain is reduced or cut off. This is known as syncope. As a result of the temporary loss of blood flow, the brain ensures that automatic, essential functions are maintained, but non-essential brain functions such as consciousness, upright posture and so on will be lost. As a result, the child will lose consciousness, may fall unless they're already lying down, the jaw clenches, eyes roll up and the child goes extremely stiff. They may have a few jerks of their arms and legs. This occurs because the forebrain, which houses the higher neurological functions, is no longer able to suppress the brainstem, allowing this uncontrolled abnormal movement to occur. The child looks extremely pale, often deathly white. Some children may bite their cheek or wet themselves during the attack. After about 20 to 30 seconds, although it often feels much longer, the heart inevitably starts to beat again, and the child gradually begins to recover. After the attack, they may be extremely tired and may sleep for several minutes or even hours. Colour can take a long time to gradually recover, but at the end of the event, the child will be completely back to normal. The diagnosis is made clinically, but the child may need an ECG to check that there is no underlying heart problem. Occasionally, more complex tests, such as prolonged heart recordings and tilt table studies, may be employed. Generally, no specific treatment is required other than keeping the child safe during the attack by keeping them away from hard surfaces and reassuring them both during the attack and afterwards. There is a temptation for parents to want to wrap their child up in cotton wool to try to prevent these attacks from occurring, but it's really important that children are able to go on and do all the normal childhood activities. Teachers, babysitters, carers and the extended family need to be told about the attacks and given appropriate information so that they follow the same supportive advice. The majority of children will grow out of these attacks in early childhood, but may be more prone to fainting as they get older, and may have similar attacks associated with painful triggers even in adult life. I later heard from Katie's mum. I learned that she had experienced regular seizures for several months, but after that they had gradually subsided and then completely stopped. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and have been enjoying my podcast. If you have, I'd be very grateful if you could rate or even review the podcast on your podcast provider. I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode, where I will be telling more stories of amazing children and their families. Goodbye.